I'll just throw in my two cents real quickly about the kids' wing and just say that Leanne and Amy and the other leaders do an amazing job to make um, a kids' program and a kids' setting incredibly safe for kids who probably don't have that kind of safety anywhere they go. So I am extraordinarily grateful for what we can offer um, our children. So let's take a minute and pray. God, still our hearts. Yeah, help us to be present to ourselves. To be able to know ourselves. Help us to be present to the people around us who we're with. And help us to be aware of your presence with us. Amen. Well, Tom and I have been married 30-some years. I usually know how many because I ask my oldest, how, many, how old are you? And then he tells me and I had a year. He's not here. It's 30-some. Um, <laughs> that is a lot of time for us to build patterns, and we have our patterns. Um, I tend to have what the Gottmans, Gottmans are marriage experts. We've taught their um, marriage courses from time to time here. Um, I tend to have what they call a harsh startup, which is what it sounds like. Um, so if I come home having left the house really clean, and now there's a mess, which might just mean one pot left on the stove, I can feel big feelings immediately. Or God forbid, Tom does something frivolous. The other day I came home and saw a new book on the table, and I'm like, wait, you bought this? They didn't have it at the library because now I'm the book police. <laughs> when I have a harsh startup, Tom at his best may say something that diffuses my edge, and we just talk about whatever's happening. But sometimes, before any conscious response has a chance to form in his brain, he's explaining in a more triggered fashion either my failure to be kind or whatever, why whatever I'm naming is wrong. And then when I hear Tom's response, I am likely to respond in kind, hence the pattern. Well, Tom and I have come a long way over a lot of years since we first had these kinds of conflicts. And often I'll hear my harsh startup and I'll just stop. Or Tom will say something funny and just diffuses it, or maybe he can overlook it. But here's the thing, no matter how good we are at diminishing each other's harsh startups, defensiveness has a life of its own. And this morning, I want to talk about 
human propensity toward defensiveness, even when there is no harsh startup, just being confronted about something we've done. And I want to propose that our propensity toward defensiveness is as old as humankind, and with a lot of evolutionary support, it is deeply embedded in our psyches. Okay, so this morning we're going to start with um, Genesis 3 from the Hebrew Bible. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now this is actually interesting because... The woman was not even formed when God spoke to the first human about this instruction. The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And for what it's worth, God didn't say that they couldn't touch it, but did say if they ate it they would die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves, so implying a loss of innocence or, or maybe the introduction of shame. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, as God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the rest of the story uh, is God's response to first humans and the consequences are laid out. So, just to rehearse that part of the story. There are two humans in a garden, along with a crafty serpent. God has told the humans what tree they could eat from and what tree they couldn't eat from. A serpent comes along telling the one, mm, I don't think you're going to die. And eating fruit from that tree will make you wise. Why not try? 
The man in our story is standing right next to the woman when this is happening. So not 40 feet away, or 20 feet away, or even 10 feet away, right next to her. He's privy to everything that's happening. The woman seeing the fruit looks good and desiring wisdom, which we are told in the scripture is something that we should all always be desiring, took some for herself and shared it with the man who also ate it. There is no mention of force or coercion. Yet when God comes to talk about it with the humans, the man blames the woman, the woman blames the serpent, Neither of them have any culpability. And it is if their hands were tied and they were force-fed the fruit. So I was listening to um, a podcast with a psychologist named Keith Witt recently um, to discuss, um, and who was discussing our propensity towards defensiveness. And he said this, this is a quote, if our nervous system, our shadow self, our unconscious, in other words, if any part of us decides that we are being threatened, and here's where it gets interesting, in 40 milliseconds, we instantiate a defensive state. So in other words, in a fraction of a second, we become defensive. He goes on to describe what he means by defensive. A defensive state is a primitive state designed to protect us. Instantly, our emotions are either amplified or numb. So our emotions are either heightened, right, or we're not feeling anything, and that would include empathy, our, our usual feelings for what the other person would be feeling. Our perspectives become distorted so that our story-making compulsion, so in other words, the stories that you and I are always telling ourselves that are making meaning of what's happening as our life is happening, our, sto our stories, story-making compulsions are hijacked by the defensive state to give us a story that supports a defensive action. So in other words, in that fraction of a second, we have a story that justifies whatever we've done. The serpent tricked me. The woman gave it to me. And of course, it's not that the humans are lying. Like the serpent is crafty and give, gave uh, the woman the fruit, and the woman gave the man the fruit. But maybe a more honest response from the woman would have been something like this. Yeah, it's true that I knew you commanded us not to eat from this tree. And it's also true when the serpent tempted me, I chose to ignore what I knew you told me. The truth is, I was fully aware of your command when I took the, the fruit. And likewise, the man could have responded by saying, while it's true that the woman gave me the fruit, I was standing right next to her. I heard the entire conversation. I was the person you originally spoke the command to. 
And I have all kinds of agency. I chose to take the fruit. The moment we enter into a defensive state, we lose our capacity for self-reflection. And we lose our capacity for empathy because we don't want to have empathy for something or someone who we feel threatened by at that moment. That's what it means to be in a defensive state. So the psychologist is proposing that you and I don't decide to become defensive, right? We don't just decide to say the crazy things that come out of our mouth. We enter into the state spontaneously, and then at some point, we might discover, oh, I think I was being defensive, or I can hear that I'm being defensive right now, aren't I? He goes on to say that because we're social beings, that if I enter into a defensive state with you, you are likely to enter into a defensive state back with me, thus creating the pattern. And he gave the example. He said that couples, usually from the time they first identify, um, I, I we're having some communication patterns. So we could probably use some help. You know, like, I want, maybe we should talk to a counselor or something. From the first time that they have that, make that observation, that um, average couple waits six years to actually make the appointment. Um, and you can imagine the patterns that are developed right, in those six years and kind of woven into the fabric of relating. And he says, by time they come to me, if we are talking about the propensity to be defensive, I can interrupt them up to 50, 50 times in a 50-minute session, pointing out change in posture, pointing out arms being folded, pointing out a change in voice, pointing out the way language is, is being used. So all this to say is that psychologists and therapists are affirming our story that defensiveness is baked into our psyche. One of the best examples we have from the Hebrew Bible is, um, of this is, of course, King Saul and David, there's a chant that King Saul is killing so many men, which he's very proud of, but David, the great warrior, is killing 10,000 times more than he is, and so King Saul is really insecure and threatened and goes berserk. But also, much of our sacred text helps us with our propensity toward defensiveness. As early as the giving of the Ten Commandments Moses, uh, to Moses at Mount Sinai, we're invited to re relate respectfully and peaceably to one another. We have multiple examples in the Gospels. So when Jesus tells us, turn the other cheek, he isn't saying so that somebody can beat the crap out of you, 
right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's essentially inviting us to get some space between when we are offended or threatened and how we react. So as an example, when Jesus is nearing the end of his life, he is struck in the face, right, by the high priest as he's being questioned. And, and he says to the high priest, why did you hit me? And I think Jesus is really asking him and all of us, why do you perpetuate the violent acts that you do? And the gospel writers set up a contrast. So we have Jesus who's calmly responding to an obviously threatening situation. And at the same time, Jesus is being threatened. Peter is also being threatened because of his close association with Jesus. And when he's questioned, did you know this man? I'm sure it's our fraction of a second, right? Peter's not stopping to think. He's not reflecting on, hmm, I wonder what a good response at this moment would be. Like, he's not summoning his best self. And this is Peter, who spent the last three years intimately close to Jesus. And this is Peter, who Jesus just warned that he would deny Jesus three times. And before Peter takes a breath, he says, no, I didn't know this man. I never, I never met this man. What are you talking about? I didn't know this man. According to the psychologist, his ability to give an honest answer or a thoughtful response is hijacked by his feelings of threat. So Jesus not only models a different way, but he is alerting us to our human condition. And it's not just this story. The Gospels also tell us to settle our disputes before we go to court. The point isn't uh, saying going to court is bad. The point is if you can learn how to work this out together, if you can learn how to relate well to one another, then maybe the court won't be necessary. Jesus had the Gospels tell us to pray for our enemy instead of cursing them. Tells us, blessed are the peacemakers. So what does it mean for us this morning? What can we learn from our origin story? So, number one, just this, defensiveness is part of the human condition. Like it is just part of who we are. The Bible's not saying where or how defensiveness arose with lots of science and history on our side. We can talk about evolution and the role of defensiveness and defendedness, the role that it's played in saving our species. The Bible is just describing what we understand, that defensiveness is built into us. It's real. It happens quickly for many of us, basically in a fraction of a second after our perceived threat. So we're just going to do a little experiment for those who want. Less than a minute. Close your eyes. Settle in. 
And imagine an authority person or a partner, but someone whose relationship to you matters, coming up to you and saying, you are in so much trouble. You really blew it this time. And just try to sense how that feels. For some people, you could probably locate in your body where you would feel that. That's all. We'll come back to it, though. For those of us who have been in unsafe situations, those kind of moments can be especially scary. And we can be responding from our three-month-old self, our five-year-old self, our six-year-old self, our eight-year-old self. The important thing to remember is that defensiveness is part of us. It comes pretty natural. And number two, the good news, I'm really glad there's good news, is that there are ways of mitigating our response. So counseling, meditation, reflective prayer are all things that can help us slow down and begin to identify when we're in a defensive state and hopefully to self-correct to a state of healthy responding. I started out my young adult life pretty defensive. Um, I think that's normal. I want to say it's normal. That's how I started out. Um, but I can still remember my boss in the Evanston Vineyard. I remember where his desk was located. I remember where mine was. I can remember the sound of his voice when he would just say, Aidy, could you come here for a minute? Before I got to his desk, I had 10 possible scenarios of what I did wrong with an accompanying justification for each one. And I remember the first time um, when I first began practicing Father Keating's version of silent prayer that he got from a book called um, Cloud of Unknowing from a like, 12th century monk. But I remember after meditating, it was my um, first foray into meditating. Some of you guys are meditators. It was my first foray into meditating. And so I was meditating most days for 20 minutes with just silence. And that's all it was. When thoughts would come, I'd kind of let them go down my imaginary river, as Father Keating taught me. Uh, but I remember at some point saying to Tom, like I'd probably been doing this for maybe a year. And I remember saying, like, I didn't have language for what I'm talking about today, but I remember saying to him, um, it seems like there's something different now. Like, when someone tells me something that freaks me out in some way, I feel like there's this second, like there's this pause that I don't ever remember having before. And I didn't understand that. I mean, to me, that's quite miraculous, sort of a Red Sea splitting, just that moment to stop and decide how do I want to respond for this fellow human being that I'm relating to right now. For those of us who engage in some form of counseling, so much of our counseling deals with moments of threat in our lives and getting some kind of healing and building 
new neural pathways that allow us to respond differently at those moments of threat. As adults, I think we have this invitation and I, I would say encouragement from scripture. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And, and taking that seriously, not like this legal, oh shoot, we have to make up because we're about to go to sleep. But just this awareness, like, oh, this is how I tend to respond. And what do I have to do to mitigate this? And how can I become a better lover to the people who I'm in relationship with? And number three, let Jesus speak words of life to us. I regularly lead a small group um, where I teach a practice called Emmanuel Prayer. And Emmanuel Prayer is a practice that uses our imagination to find God or the divine or Jesus in our memories and experience God's love and some healing. So we're going to go back to that moment for those of you who want. And that person has just said something threatening to us, like, you are in trouble. So close your eyes if you want. And this person is like, you are in trouble. I can't believe you did this again. Like, this is terrible. And imagine for a moment God, the divine Jesus, coming to you and sitting next to you. Maybe even putting an arm around you and you hear the words, I love you. You're safe with me. The need for your defensiveness is absent with me. I love every single part of you. I'm never ashamed of you. I celebrate every moment. You are a delight. You are a joy. I love what you love. Let's spend lots of time together because there's no one I'd rather be with. Okay. Is that any better? Early in Jesus' ministry, the heavens opened up and parent God said to child Jesus, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I imagine that that is God's ongoing tick-tock to us. So maybe we'll just close by taking one last moment, imagining ourselves on, in some park on a bench or on a blanket on the grass and maybe there's other people around us and a voice from the clouds saying not just to us but to everyone around, hey, I'm so excited to tell you all that this is my child. I couldn't be more pleased with them. Amen.